Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, this morning we're going to be concluding our sermon series that we have been uh, having now for the past three Sundays on marriage. And we're going to be in the same text we've been in for the past three Sundays, which is Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And just as I have done on previous Sundays, I'm going to now read that passage in its entirety. Hear with me now. These are the words of our God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me begin by addressing what I feel is the elephant in the room. For the past several Sundays, I have felt it. I have begun these messages on marriage by reading these words from Ephesians 5 out loud, and every time I do, maybe I'm imagining things, but I don't think so, there is an almost palpable feeling of discomfort and uneasiness surrounding some of the language in these verses. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but I think as I read it, I can see it on your faces and in your body language. There is that certain indefinable feeling that settles over a room when we're all thinking and feeling the same thing. It feels jarring, doesn't it? And uncomfortable, maybe even heavy-handed, to hear things like, the man is the head of the wife or wives should submit in everything to their husbands. These phrases land on our ears with an emotional force that makes us want to quickly move on from them. They seem too out of step with modern sensibilities. Some of us, if we are brutally honest, might even confess that these words, which we understand to be the words of our God, are embarrassing to us to some extent. We generally want to share the message of the Bible with our non-believing friends. But when we read this passage, we are secretly glad that none of them are here this morning to hear these words. What would they think? We fear they wouldn't understand. And maybe in truth, what we fear is that we don't understand the full meaning of these words ourselves. You see, most of us decided long ago the question of whether God exists or not. And to take it a step further, most of you have decided who God is. 
that he is Jesus, the God of the Bible. That's why we're all here in church today, presumably. But there still remains, to some extent, the question of what is God like exactly. And so especially for women, when we come to passages like this one, what causes concern is not that it might somehow prove that God isn't real, but rather that maybe he isn't really who we thought he was. And of course, even if that's not true, part of the discomfort, I'm sure, with this passage is the very real concern that some people might willfully distort and weaponize its meaning to serve their own selfish, self-serving agenda. Three Sundays ago, we began our conversation about marriage with the foundational observation that marriage is something that God has created. And because marriage is a divine invention, it is governed by certain God-given laws, God-given purposes, and a God-given structure. And this morning, as promised, I want to conclude this series by studying the structure of marriage. Or, to be more specific, the biblical ideas of headship and submission. What what exactly does God mean when he calls wives to submit and husbands to be the head? And also, perhaps just as importantly, what does it not mean? One principle that is sometimes very helpful when we study the Bible is the principle of first mention. They, they teach this to pastors and coming up through seminary and that kind of thing, uh, which is not, uh, don't, don't get hung up on that. Anybody's capable of understanding this. But the principle of first mention says that to understand a particular word or doctrine or idea, we must find the first place in the Bible where it occurs and study that passage. The reasoning is that the Bible's first mention of something is often the simplest and clearest presentation. Doctrines are then more fully developed on that foundation. So to fully understand an important and complex theological concept, like the way husbands and wives are to relate to one another in the context of a Christian marriage, Bible students are advised to start with its first mention. Where has this first come up in the Bible? And of course, the first mention of marriage is found in the opening chapters of Genesis. God forms the first man, we're told in the Bible, from the dust of the earth, and he breathes life into him, and he is named Adam. But then God famously makes the observation that it was not good for man to be alone. We might stop and say, what do you mean he's alone? He's with you, God. Aren't you enough? And God apparently doesn't feel that it is, not because God is some way insufficient, but because God, Adam's design is incomplete as long as he's alone. God brings all the creatures of the earth before Adam, and Adam names them, but it says in chapter 2, verse 20, that among the creatures of the earth, there was not found a helper fit for Adam. And then we read these words. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, and folks, this is the very first poem ever expressed on planet Earth. 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the story of the very first marriage in the Bible, at which God himself officiated. And the word that interests me in all of this, for the purposes of our discussion this morning, is the word helper. Eve is described as a helper fit for Adam. I don't know about you, but when I hear the English word helper, I'm tempted to think of it as meaning less than, or kind of ancillary to the real star of the show, Adam. Or maybe it might bring to mind like when my five-year-old Charlie, you know, sometimes when it snows and I say, honey, I'm going to go out and clear the driveway, Charlie will say, I'll help you, Dad. (laughs) He's five years old. And he got a little toy shovel for Christmas. And while I'm out there snow blowing, he's just scratching in the snow. And when we come in, Sarah will say, Charlie, what were you doing? Were you helping Daddy? And I go, he's my helper. Is that kind of what we think when we hear that there was a helper found for Adam that was fit for him? It might strike us that way, kind of patronizing. Like she was made to provide him emotional support and to bring him coffee or something. Is that the idea? Well, none of that is what is being communicated here by our God. The word helper in the Hebrew is azar, which when it is used in the Bible typically describes something or someone that brings a needed element to an effort or task. It is used in the Old Testament to describe military alliances between two kings. If one king wasn't able to defend the land, his lands, or on his own, he would need an azar, a helper, to bring his armies to bear in common cause. In another instance in the Old Testament, the word is used to describe one city coming to the assistance of another. However, And this is very interesting in light of our study this morning. The greatest and most common example of the word azar in our Bibles is found in all the numerous instances where God is described as our helper. In Psalm 10, 14, for example, it says that God is the helper of the fatherless. It's the same exact word that's used to describe Eve in her relationship to Adam. Or in Psalm 121, 2, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In the New Testament, God uses a different word in the Greek, but it means much the same. In John 14, 26, God describes himself this way. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. God is your helper. He's needed. He's necessary. He's essential. This is what is being communicated about Eve. So when we put all that together, when God describes Eve as a helper fit for Adam, he is not describing a being who is less essential than Adam. In fact, he is saying the exact opposite. By describing Eve as a helper fit for Adam, God is saying that Eve provides something necessary and essential that could not be found in Adam alone. One pastor I 
read his commentary this week on this, he pointed out something that I really liked. I liked the illustration. He said that if, uh, if you take a pane of glass, it has some reflective properties. If you're passing a window, you can kind of see your reflection and fix your hair in it, right? And you can do the same in a piece of polished metal. But when you take glass and you back it with polished silver, what do you get? A mirror, a really sharp, clear image. And the reason why Eve was so necessary is because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, which means in part that they were made by God to image him forth in the midst of his creation. Mankind is designed by our God to reflect him, his nature, in the midst of the created order. And Adam, in him you could see kind of a reflection of God, and in Eve you could see kind of a reflection of God, but when you brought them together, voila, there's God. There's unity in the midst of otherness. You know, our God exists eternally within the three-in-one Godhead community of the Bible, of the Trinity, I'm sorry. And Adam and Eve, these two very different creatures, when they're brought together in this unity, this one flesh unity, which is really a, a very clear, apt description of the Trinity, three in one, two in one. Adam and Eve are one flesh, just as our God is one. This is what's being intended, I believe. It's that idea of a mirror as a reflection and another thing that is clear from the creation account in Genesis is that marriage, this exclusive, permanent, binding, one flesh covenant between a man and a woman, well, it preceded the fall. This is something that existed in the perfect order of the garden. The other two institutions that were created by God or instituted by God, the state and the church, they came after the fall. Marriage is the only institution created by God in the Bible that existed before the fall and after it. Governments have been given to preserve fallen mankind. And the church has been given to save and transform fallen mankind, to deliver fallen mankind out of this world into heaven, into eternity. And whereas the state and the church were instituted to counteract and mercifully mitigate the disorder and brokenness of the fall, marriage was first instituted and created in the perfect order of the Garden of Eden. It was made for another place. And when it is good, marriage still carries about it the aroma of the garden. We talked about this last week a little bit. In marriage, there is a longing after the promise and potential of marriage. It's like, I think, a kind of longing for the garden. When man and woman were naked in each other's presence and they were not ashamed. Knowing truly and truly known. Don't we all long for that place? Don't we long for that? What this observation means for this present discussion is that the structure of marriage... Man and woman, headship and submission, existed before the fall. It existed when things were perfectly in order. John Piper, commenting on this idea, he said this, 
When sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, the harmony of marriage was ruined. And not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile, exploitive domination in some men and lazy, uncaring indifference in others. And it twisted woman's intelligent, willing submission into a fawning show of servile compliance in some women and a prideful disrespect toward their husbands in others. Sin did not create headship and submission. It ruined and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. This is a very important idea to have firmly in place as we come to Christian marriage. What the fall did was take the mirror of man and woman together that had reflected the image of God so well and warped it into a funhouse reflection of God. You guys ever been to a fair and gone into the funhouse and they have those weird mirrors? Some that make you look really squat and fat, others tall and skinny. It's a warped, distorted image. Or perhaps a shattered mirror would be another way to describe it. Our ability to image God forth was not destroyed utterly so much as it became horribly distorted and fragmented in the fall. So this still raises the question, what does it mean then for us as Christians living in this fallen world to embrace a biblical idea of what it is to submit and be the head? It's no wonder that we should be made uneasy by words like these, reflected as they are in the strange, distorted, funhouse mirror of so many marriages that are warped and wrong in the way husbands and wives relate to one another. Ephesians 5 says of marriage that it is, it, that it is a profound mystery referring to Christ and the church. This observation that Christian marriage is meant to make the gospel visible is reminiscent, isn't it, of the language at the beginning that described Adam and Eve as being made in the image of God, which is to say, in part, that they were designed to image forth the Creator in the midst of creation. And so when it says that in the same way Christian marriage is intended to image forth the gospel in the midst of this fallen world, we see some parallels. The profound mystery of man and woman in marriage is referring to Jesus and the church. It's saying that man and woman today are to image forth the God in the midst of this fallen disorder. In the same way that the first marriage, Adam and Eve, were put together in order to image forth the creator God in the midst of his creation. So in some way, the recovery of those concepts from the ravages and distortions and the warped picture we have seen of headship and submission through sin are essential to our calling as a husband and wife team to make the gospel clearly visible in our homes. A couple Sundays ago, we talked about conflict in marriage. And on that Sunday, we made the observation from Scripture that the biggest problem in our marriages is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the biggest problem in any marriage. Husbands, and in both the husband's command to love and the wife's command to submit and respect, we are being called to a radical lifestyle 
of selfless preferring of the other. Husbands, your job in your marriage is to seek your joy and the joy of your wife. And wives, your job before the Lord in your marriage is to seek your joy and the joy of your husband. Marriage is only going to be great when both husband and wife are mutually committed to seeking their joy and the joy of the other. And with that in mind, let me begin to explain and recover these ideas with this observation. I think in order to see headship and submission correctly, we have to understand them in the context of the biblical command that husbands and wives are to put their spouse first. I'm thankful to Martin Lloyd-Jones for helping me to see something in my study this week. And husbands, pay close attention to this. This is so important. In all of these 12 verses describing the structure of marriage, husbands are only commanded to do one thing. You're only ever commanded by your God to do one thing. Do you see what it is? God says, husbands, love your wives. He says it three times, but there's only one command. He never issues one other command to husbands except that one, love your wives. Wives are commanded to submit, to obey, to respect, but nowhere does God command that that husbands should exert their headship by demanding these things of their wives. The command from God is not to rule over your wife, but to love your wife. The command is not to go get your wife's respect, but to love her. The clear implication is this. Headship on the part of the husband in marriage is never something that you can demand or take, but it's only something you can receive. This is the way God has set it up. In fact, the command is to love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, what does God say about what it is to love? It says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Get this, husbands, it does not insist on its own way. How should headship find expression? Not in an insistence on your way, but in love. God only gives one command, and that is to love. And husbands, that is not something you can ever demand or or require of your wife to give you. It's only something you can ever receive. We saw something very similar in our study of sex and intimacy in marriage from last week. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, Paul says that the man and the woman have rights over each other's bodies. And when the two become one flesh, their bodies are, each, are at each other's disposal. Each has the right to lay claim. But what we really need to see is what Paul commands in verses 3 and 5 in view of those mutual rights. He does not say to husbands or wives, because that's true, therefore go take what's yours. That's not the command. The command is to give of yourself, not take. He says, do not refuse one another. The command is not husbands, go get it. Wives, go get what's yours. He says to husbands, don't deny your wife. He says to wives, don't refuse your husband. 
In other words, he presents this thing as something that is yours to give, but not to insist upon. We see in this a principle that happy and fulfilling relations in marriage depend on each partner aiming to give satisfaction to the other. It is the joy of each to make the other happy. If we could just get this and live in this place, most of the problems in our marriages would be solved. I believe this to be true. And this, by the way, is the way that Jesus, if marriage is supposed to refer to Christ and and the church, Jesus, when he came, he did not come insisting that we give him his rightful place. Jesus, in his first first coming to the earth, came to take our place on the cross. Isn't that true? That's the whole reason he came, was to come and take your place on the cross, not to insist that you put him in his place. That day is coming, by the way. He's going to come again for his bride. But this is very similar to when it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Not husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church by crushing dissent, by silencing, ignoring, compelling, drawing her to your will out of obligation. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus loved and took our place on the cross, and he earned our response. In this command for husbands to love their wives, there is a broader principle of biblical leadership at work here. When Joshua is commissioned to follow Moses as leader of God's people in Joshua 1, he is given seven separate commands from God. Only one of those commands is a command to do anything. The rest are all commands to be something in his character. And when Paul lists the qualifications for those who would serve as elders in the church, in the books of 1 Timothy and Titus, he mentions about 15 or so qualifications, and only one of them had to do with technical proficiency in a task. All of the rest had to do with that person's inner character. It says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What does all this mean? Well, it means that for leaders in the church, and also for leaders in the home, positional authority means next to nothing. And relational authority means almost everything. And when it comes to this notion of of the husband being the head of the wife, This only works when the wife gives headship to her husband because he loves her. Husbands, your authority in the home flows from your character and your heart of sacrificial service and love toward your wife. 
And wives, when Scripture says to submit to your husband, respect him, and obey him, it is saying, and we, you really need to understand this, that you are a kingmaker. Because God does not give your husband a command to exert his head, headship, but only to love you, it is saying that in a Christian marriage, headship is yours to give or to withhold. Husbands cannot be the head except by your consent. And again, this points to a broader principle for leadership among God's people. If tomorrow, for example, it came out that I had suffered some very serious moral failure, like I had bought a bag of Idaho potatoes, <laughs> or I'd been caught rooting against the Patriots or something, now, let's make it more serious even than those grave offenses. What if I robbed a bank? Josh Tate, your pastor, robbed a bank. And there was an emergency board meeting called to decide what to do about me. Your near-do-well pastor. The board might come out of that meeting, if they lack good judgment, having decided to let me stay on as pastor. They might let me keep my title, my office, my paycheck. But even though they let me keep all those trappings of my possessions, would I be your pastor anymore? No. I would not. In reality, I would have stopped being your pastor the moment I committed that grave moral failure. I am only a pastor in your hearts and minds, if you consent to me holding that place of influence in your lives. I have nothing to leverage. My stock and trade is your trust and confidence in me. And without those things, I am not a pastor. I'm a dude with a title and a paycheck. Headship, husbands, is very similar in fact, identical. Husbands are not entitled to headship if they are not loving their wives sacrificially. Your authority in your home flows from your character as a servant leader, a lover of your wife. In verse 24, where it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I have a story about this verse I want to share on Saturday night when we get together at our marriage thing. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but bookmark that in your minds. This verse does not mean that wives are to obey their husbands to the same extent or in the same way that you obey Jesus. That would be raising man to the place of God. I'm not even sure I make a good husband to my wife, but I am sure that I would make a very bad God. And so surely this verse cannot be saying that wives are to view their husbands as being godlike in their authority in the home. That's not what this is. I know people twist it that way. I know maybe you've even heard it said that way. But that is patently not what this is saying. This is calling a wives to obey their husbands because they are obedient to the Lord. Or as you follow the Lord in obedience, you will obey your husband. 
But of course, nowhere does the Bible call us to obey a human authority in the same unconditional way that we obey God. In Romans 13, the Bible calls us as citizens to submit, respect, and obey the government, the ruling authorities. But in Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles say to the ruling authorities in Jerusalem, we must obey God rather than men. Similar. By calling wives to submit to their husbands, it is not saying that wives have no part in the decision-making process. If that were true, then woman would not be a true helper in the azar sense that we understand when we read the Bible. She would not be understood as bringing something that is needed to the partnership that could not be found in the man alone. There would be no completion in that union. There would be no iron sharpening iron. But nevertheless, here within these words, there is a sense of authority and structure when we talk about headship and submission. Inevitably, and you know this if you've been married for more than five seconds, there will come a time where you and your spouse are at loggerheads over some issue that must be decided. This will happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, you were probably in a coma. <laughs> okay, and, and th- these issues are so myriad, I, I, I hesitate to even start describing a concrete scenario. But let's say, for example, when Sarah and I were trying to decide whether we were going to come to State Road, we were both on board. There was no disagreement in the moment of that decision. But let's say there was. Let's say I came to Sarah and said, you know, honey, I really feel that we should go to Northern Maine. And what if in that moment, she didn't say this, but what if in that moment she had said, honey, I'm just really not there. I like Florida. It's warm down here. And Idaho potatoes are readily available. And, uh, (laughs) right? And we went on and on and on. And I said, but honey, we went and candidated. They're really waiting for a decision. She said, well, I'm just, I I don't know. I don't know. Weeks turns into months, months, you know, State Road is, you gotta, gotta give us an answer or we gotta move on. Okay, now in that moment, there is a decision. One of us is gonna be the tiebreaker. Either I, the husband, say, honey, trust me. You, you know my heart towards you. You know my heart towards the Lord. You know the sincerity of my love for you and the family. You know all that. Will you please go my way on this? And if she says no, there's no command to exert my domination there. She becomes the tiebreaker. You see, either the husband or the wife is going to break that tie. And husbands and wives, I want you to understand that in the Bible, in that kind of scenario, wives, you are called to back your husband's play. This is one of the most deeply countercultural things that the church can say out loud right now in the midst of our current cultural climate, but that's true. Having said that, I must say this, that has almost never happened in my marriage. I think this is very rare. Sarah and I, for the most part, we have come to decisions, we have wrestled, we have talked, we have prayed, we have worked through it, and we've come out to a place where one of us has been brought into agreement with the other. Many times I've come to Sarah with an idea, 
And she has said, honey, I just really, I can't see that. That doesn't feel right. And we've talked about it, and we've prayed, and you know what? A month later, I'm like, wow, I'm so glad you stopped me. <laughs> I would have gone and done that. But you were given to me by God. You, you prayed with me. You, you, you were hearing from the Lord, too. And in the midst of that, we, I, the decision we made was better because we're doing it together. That's 99.9% of how decisions happen in the Tate household. But every once in a while, there will come a time. And wives, I really want you to embrace this idea. I've never known a woman that doesn't want to be married to a man that serves in a sacrificial leadership way like this. It is much better than apathy. Isn't that true? Wouldn't you rather be married to a man who is lovingly considerate and is excited about shaping the life of the family, shaping the obedient response of your family to the direction of the Lord. It's awful when it's the other way. It's just pure apathy. It's just TV and hobbies and no real leadership or direction. Encourage. Part of your calling as a wife is to encourage your husband to a more excellent way to be a servant leader in your home. The Bible does not endorse a view of submission that enables and makes permissible, permissible exploitation, or which is slavish, unthinking, passive, or coerced. You cannot find in the Bible an endorsement for unthinking, servile obedience on the part of the woman, any more than you can find an endorsement for tyranny on the part of the man. That's not how Jesus wants the church to respond to his leadership. He wants us to respond to him. The church, he wants the church to respond to him as Christ in a free and willing and glad and engaged and joy-filled and actively joining with him in his mission. And that is what you are being called to, wives. To the extent that your husband is following the Lord and is sincere in his pursuit after him, get behind that. Back his play. Affirm and encourage him in it. And in this way, Paul heads off the sinful inclinations of the human heart in two very important ways. By telling husbands to love their wives like Jesus, and by telling women to relate to their husbands like the church relates to Jesus, Paul is saying that the roles of men and women are distinct from one another. They are not interchangeable. But he guards against men abusing their role as the head, by pointing them to Christ's example. And he guards against debase, the debasing of women through an unbiblical notion of submission by pointing them to the way that the church is called to respond to Jesus' leadership. The following, I think, are two good, succinct definitions of headship and submission. I should have put these in the bulletin, but I didn't. If you want them, I can give them to you later. I'm borrowing these from John Piper. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. I entitled our message this morning, looking outward in the same direction. And I borrowed that line from 
Saint Ant- I'm sorry, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He was a French literary icon and war hero. You may have grown up in school and had to read The Little Prince. He wrote that. But he also wrote these words, and I like them. Love does not consist in gazing at each other, but in looking outward in the same direction. Love in a Christian marriage is all wrapped up in this. It is wrapped up in the husband and wife both looking at Christ together, looking at to their God together. In fact, these verses, verses 22 through 33 in Ephesians 5, are really the first attempt by Paul to unpack verse 21, where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another only works when it's done out of mutual reverence for Christ. And so my challenge to husbands and wives is this. The greatest gift you can give your spouse is holiness. Husbands, the greatest thing you can give your wife is to be a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of your God. And wives, the very greatest thing you can give to your husbands is to be a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. It's only out of a mutual reverence for Christ that these ideas of headship and submission can work. And when we take our eyes off of him and we begin operating from a selfless place, selfish place, or even when we make our spouse an idol in the place of God, headship and submission become wildly distorted, destructive, exploitive, nasty, This can only work if we are mutually submitted to Christ and operating out of reverence for him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for these four Sundays in a row that we have set aside to talk about marriage. Father, it has been a challenging four weeks. But Father, I thank you for the way that you have spoken to us through your word. Father, I thank you for the homes that are present here in this room. And Father, I pray your protection over them. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a vision, a from-the-heart vision of headship and submission that is free from the destructive influences of the fall. Those things existed in perfect peace before the fall happened. And Father, it is hard for us to recapture them because we are so steeped in sin. Our hearts are so prone to wander, so prone towards self-centeredness. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help the husbands in this room to live out of their calling, to be servant leaders in their homes, who take a primary responsibility for the spiritual stewardship of their families, for the protection of their families, for providing for them. And Father, I pray, Lord, that they would find in their wives a helper that is fit for them, which is to say that they find a necessary, essential peace. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would allow our our homes, our husband and wife teams, to dwell together in perfect peace and that you might be reflected well in the midst of it. And I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.